Uh, we find ourselves continuing this morning. Um, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 4, we'll be there. Um, but if you also want to like, put your finger there and then also turn to Philippians chapter 2, we'll be in those two places primarily this morning as we continue on talking about the Bible. Um, and last week we began to ask some questions and talk about some things uh, as it relates to the Bible. And specifically this question of... it. We ask them in a couple different ways. Is the Bible still relevant today? That's the question that I'll probably ask mostly. Uh, but why is the Bible relevant to me? And both those questions, like we said, were very important to ask in the culture that we live in uh, today, uh, where truth is all over the place. Um, and as a way of sliding into our topic for this morning, I thought it would first of all be helpful for us to just quickly refresh the ground that we covered last week. And as you'll hopefully remember if you were able to be here uh, last week or you were watching at home, this month, like I said, we will be talking about the Bible. But we're not talking about the Bible from a historical sense or even really a theological perspective. As I mentioned, there are not enough Sundays in this year to exhaust the, the nuances or the intricacies of the Bible, God's Word, which again, like I said, which is why we established starting last Sunday a central question or some variants of that question that will guide us every single week. Is the Bible still relevant today? And if it is, if the Bible is relevant, and I believe that it is, that's my conviction, what makes the Bible so relevant? And so last week we began our examination of those questions with what I feel is probably the most foundational, crucial aspect of God's words. I think it's very easy to overlook this, but we said that the Bible is God's eternal word. It didn't just magically start at some point in time. It started actually, we read last week, didn't we? In Genesis 1, it started before time. In John 1, it tells us the Word existed from the very beginning, before the beginning, was with God and was God. We talked not only about the eternal nature of the Bible, but we also looked at its, here's a big word we used last word, infallible quality, that it is quite literally unable to be in error, that it is not able or it will not deceive or it will not lead astray because the one who stands behind that word is holy, consistent, and true. It reminds me at this point for us to read. If you would like to turn there, you can. Uh, I will read it. I don't think I'm going to have it up on the screen, but it is kind of our theme verse uh, for the entire month. We read it already in Bible study this morning, but I'm going to keep on reading this. And hopefully when we get to the end of January, this will be like burned into your brain and into your heart. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God, and it is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And furthermore, off of that, what we said when it really comes down to it is that the Bible is true and it is to be believed. We're going to continue talking about that idea today. That really is part of our idea. The Bible is true. It is to be believed. And it is true, and it is to be believed because God's character is solid, and God's character is the most consistent and sure thing that we could ever stake our life on. 
And it's for that reason that God has all authority over and in our lives and why His Word has any sway in our lives. So from the start this morning, we need to remember and hold on to what we talked about last week, that God's Word is eternal. Now, jumping off of that point brings us to the next central and undeniable truth when it comes to God's Word. And like I said, it is that the Bible is true and the Bible is eternal. And because the Bible is eternal, the Bible is true. And because it is true, and hopefully I was able to establish that last week and help you to grasp its eternal, inspired, infallible nature, because it is true, and this is a really, really big deal for today. I'm going to say this, and this is what we're going to hit on all morning this morning. Because God's Word is true, it is to be obeyed. All right, and, and therein lies the problem, doesn't it, right? I say a word like obey or obedience, and it's kind of a dirty word, isn't it? I, what? I don't obey. Obedience is the name of the class that we take our dogs to when they're young puppies so that they learn how to walk better on a leash or they learn to listen closer or they don't mess all over the floor or tear every object in sight that they lay their eyes on. Guys, most people on planet Earth don't really like to follow rules if they're not forced to. We like to be in control. We like to have our own way. We like to control our own path. I came across um, a very famous poem. If it's okay for a minute, I'm just going to do a little poetry. Is that, is that good? Poetry hour? The poem, poem I came across uh, this week, and the title of that poem is Invictus. There's actually a movie made based on this poem. It was a poem that Nelson Mandela used constantly and consistently. You can understand when I read through this why he would use this. Invictus in Latin means unconquerable. I want you to listen to the words. Now, I have to admit, when I read poetry, sometimes I'm just like, all right. I think we'll get the gist of this poem by the end of it, all right, what he's saying. The man who writes this poem's name is William Ernest Henley, and he says this, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. You see where this is going, right? In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but it is unbowed. There you go. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. And it's this last little block of the poem that has everything that I'm going to go for this morning. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. These words sound probably very familiar at this point. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And although we may not be able to perfectly explain every part of that poem or get every part of what that poem is about, we get the overall gist of it, don't we? Of the words and the tone of what this author and this poet is saying, we certainly can't miss the last point that he's making, that we are the masters of our own faith. We are the captains of our own soul. We, can, we control everything, right? And we... I mean, we, we get that, right? That is, that is native to the human spirit, this unconquerable nature that we have. We are formidable. We're able to do our own thing in our own time, no matter what anyone else may tell us 
or do to us. And we even read parts of Scripture that often and honestly we usually take out of context, you know, to speak about this. I think of, my, uh, of Philippians 4.13. What's Philippians 4.13 say? I can do all things, right? And like, I, just, I always call that like the athlete's um, verse because like every athlete uses, I can do all things. Um, but they never really do the rest of it, right? I can do all things what? Through Christ. I also think as well, too, of Romans chapter 8, specifically verse 37. He goes through this really great section of Scripture. Uh, nothing can separate us from God's love. Verse 37, he says that we are made to be more than conquerors. And then here we go. Here are these words again. In Christ. See, we always forget that last little part there. Those, those very important words. In Christ or from Christ or through Christ is what makes us more than conquerors. Guys, the inconvenient truth is that it's simply not what God's Word says at all, that we are just unconquerable, that we are invincible, that we are formidable, that nobody can tell us what to do. And if we are, and we said this last week, going to be people who are shaped by the principles of, of this book, of the Bible, it would be helpful to get a grasp on what it says about who becomes the master and commander of our fate, or who is the captain of our soul. And I really know of no better place or better person to go to in helping us see the necessity of obedience to God's Word in the life of a believer than Jesus Christ Himself. And you're like, whoa, super duper shocker, buddy. We're going to go Jesus here. Like, hey, that's the model. That's the example. What better place do I have to go than that? I, I would say it actually this way, and this is the case that I'm going to make this morning. In all of Jesus' life, he lived a life of complete obedience to his Father. Now, guys, this is, this is amazing to me when I think of Jesus' life and the obedience he showed to his Father. He, he honors the authority of his Father, and not just the authority of his Father, but the truthfulness of his Word through complete and absolute obedience at every step in his life. Or to put it another way, because Jesus knew God's Word to be true, he thought it was worth obeying. That's the way I would say it. That's a, that's a great idea, isn't it, right? It's a novel idea. It's a great question for us, I think, as we start out this morning, is as you encounter God's Word and you read God's Word and you know God's Word to be true, do you think that it's worth obeying? The fact that he knew God's Word and he knew it to be true and he thought it was worth obeying is, is very plain. It's made known in the well-known passage of the Apostle writes, I told you to Philippians chapter 2, is where we're going to start this morning. It's going to be one of the couple texts that we use. If you're there, Philippians chapter 2, I, I say this often, that this is probably easily top three favorite sections of Scripture for me. Philippians 2, starting at verse 5, it says this, you, you must, not, this is kind of a good idea, like you must, you have to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, listen to this, guys, listen. Though he was God, and he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, what did he do? He gave up his divine 
privileges. How, how many of like, we don't have divine privileges, but we have privileges in life, right? And how many of us are willing to give up our most precious and treasured privileges? Lay it all down for the good of others. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself. Listen to this. He humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus came to earth to live in humble dependence upon and full obedience to the Father. I mean, like, Jesus, God Himself, came and was fully dependent upon His Father. What does it say here again in Philippians 2? When He appeared in human form, here's the word, He humbled Himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Even though obedience, Jesus' obedience led him straight to a cross, Jesus followed the will of the Father. You remember, don't you, at the, and towards the end of his life in the Garden of, of Gethsemane, the obedient son, Jesus himself, wrestles with the implications and the impact of what faced him at the cross. And what does he say? He's there in the garden, he's praying to God, the Father, and he says, if it is possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what does he say? Not as I will, but as you will. Guys, I mean, we read that all the time and we read those words, but that is a heavy, heavy moment. That is the, to me, epitome of obedience. Like, if God, Father, if you can... If you could just make this happen any other way, but, but not what I want, but what you want. Not my will, but what but you will. And what I want to do this morning is I want to use this passage here in Philippians 2 and the moment of Jesus being on the cross at the end of his life, and I want to actually move backward in Jesus' life to show all the ways that he was faithful to God's Word and obedient to God's Word. Because again, if you believe that the Bible is true, and Jesus believed that the Bible was true, then he thought it was worth obeying. Even in the most difficult circumstances, he was willing to be obedient to that. And first and foremost, what I want to emphasize is that if we are going to be obedient, and this isn't just about a Jesus thing, that we just look at Jesus and be like, oh, what a great example, what a great guy. No, he lives a life so that we could live the very same life, that we can be obedient as he was obedient. And if we're going to become obedient, and I do believe that's, very important to say it that way. We, it's a process. We don't just automatically wake up one day and roll out of bed and we're like, all right, we're going to be the most obedient. No, it doesn't work that way. It's a process. It's a discipline to become obedient. If we're going to become obedient like Jesus and model our life on the character traits of Jesus, the first thing that we have to have in our lives is a really, this is a dirty word too, surrender. Now, if obedience is a really dirty word, um, surrender is its cousin, all right? Nobody likes to surrender at anything. 
Guys, a very clear but seldom pondered truth of the entire New Testament is that Christ's entire life, I really believe this, every step of his life, every word that he spoke in his ministry were orchestrated by his Father, and that Jesus was very careful to carry out every detail according to the will of the Father. In fact, it says, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, Then I said... Look, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the Scriptures. Which is actually a paraphrasing of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, which say, You take no delight in sacrifices or offerings. Now that you have made me listen, I finally understand. You don't require burnt offerings or sent offerings. And then I said, Look, I have come, as is written about me in the scriptures. I take joy in doing your will, my God. For your instructions are written on my heart. This is Jesus' life. He's living. He's living out, not just scripture, he's living out the truth of scripture in his life. And if this attitude of surrender is present at the end of Jesus' life, most obviously in the cross, what about the, the whole or what I call the meat of Jesus' ministry? The three years that he's pouring into these 12 guys and he is spreading the gospel, what do we see about surrender in his ministry? And just in the gospel of John alone, we get an insider's view of the attitudes and the actions that make Jesus tick. I want to start kind of at the beginning of John and just go a, a few spots in John along the way, is what Jesus says about how he is surrendering himself to the Father's will. John 4.34, this happens in the context, you'll remember, um, of the uh, meeting the woman at the well in John 4. And you remember he's had this interchange between this, this woman and they've gone back and forth and the disciples come back and they've been in town and, and, and they're like, hey, Jesus, we got some food here. And Jesus says in John 4.34, uh, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. To which that the guy is looking like, did somebody, did somebody bring him, like, was like DoorDash here before we got here? Or like, like, I'm confused. Jesus says, I don't need your food. This is what, what I really get my nourishment off, is doing the will of God. John 5.30, he continues on just a chapter later, and he's talking about this. He says, actually, I can do, listen to this, this is Jesus, Son of God. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me, therefore my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. John 6, 38, just another chapter later. I have come down from heaven to, there it is again, do the will of God who sent me. Not to do, this is sounding very familiar, isn't it? It's almost like Jesus has like some marching orders. He understands them very clearly. I am doing the will of God. I'm not here for my own show, for my own thing. John 8, 29, he continues on. And the one who sent me is with me, for he has not deserted me, for I always, I always do what pleases him. John 12, 49, continuing on, I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say, and listen to this, not just what to say, but how to say it. 
That's some surrender, guys. Some hardcore surrender. God, you just tell me. Father, you just tell me. You tell me what to say. You tell me how to say. You tell me what to do, and I'll do it. It's not my will. It's your will. John 14, 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me and does his work through me. Guys, don't you understand that even Jesus coming to earth was an act of obedience? Now, this is a a little beyond, and next month we'll begin talking about Father, Son, and Spirit, and I know every time we start talking about three persons, the the Trinity, and this gets a little confusing. I, I just imagine to myself Father, Son, Spirit in heaven, and they were always in perfect unison and community. They always made decisions that they always agreed on, and they, they're talking one day, and they're like, guys, really crazy idea. Um, we're gonna have to, somebody's going to have to go to earth. Like, what? Yeah, yeah, somebody's going to have to go to earth, and they're going to have to become human. They're going to be, they're gonna have to become human so that they can save humans. Hmm, okay, that's an interesting idea. I don't know what they'd have to do. Like, they pull these, like, they just start playing the straw game, and, like, Jesus gets short straw, and it's like, all right, I'm going, guys. That is, that just in alone in itself is an act of obedience, completely dedicated to doing the will of the Father, to the will of God, to the will of the three persons of the Trinity. Guys, every act and every word of Jesus' life and ministry was a product of doing and saying exactly what the Father wanted. I hope you got that from all of we just read there in John. Those were just little snippets. All that Christ did in his life on earth was done according to the scriptures, according to the word. You could literally say that Jesus lived and he died by the word. Like, not, I'm not saying that like figuratively. I mean like, like literally. He lived. Every action in his life was lived by the word of God and he died according to the will and the word of God. What God had spoken in the Old Testament was so authoritative to Christ that he obeyed it completely, flawlessly. If you were to go to the Gospel of Matthew, over ten times in the Gospel of Matthew alone, we see that Jesus lived exactly as God's word predicted in order, and the, and the phrase that Matthew uses over and over again is that the scriptures would be or might be fulfilled. That's the obedience that Jesus lives in his life. For Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity, to live out in minute detail what God had said speaks volumes about the authority of scripture and what it ha- the sway it's supposed to have in our lives. And think about this, guys. If, if God himself, and that's what Philippians 2 says, God himself, in the person of Jesus, was under the authority of the word of God. Why would we think that we are any different? Why would we think that we are exempt from the same attitude and the same posture? Guys, to me, the supreme argument for the accuracy and the truthfulness of Scripture is simply that God himself tells tells us that it can be trusted. And you might say to yourself, or some skeptic might say, well, that's a really convenient argument there. But consider this, guys. The creator of the entire universe, who called galaxies into being by the authority of his voice, illustrates by his own life, Jesus does, in his own life, the need to be under authority. 
He, he condescends to be completely obedient to the Word and the will of God. You'll remember in the disciples' prayer, we call it the Lord's Prayer, but really it's a prayer that's given to the disciples to be a model prayer. Jesus tells us to, to desire to do the Father's will. It's not enough just to recognize the authority of Scripture as the voice of God. God wants us to honor that authority by being obedient in our own obedience. In fact, Jesus makes obedience to the Father a condition of our relationship with Him. Matthew 12.50, He says this to His disciples. Anyone who does the will of My Father in heaven is My brother and sister and mother. You want to know how you get close to Jesus? You want to know how you have a relationship with the Father? Is to be obedient to God's Word. To believe that it is true, and because it's true, it's worth obeying. And if Jesus' death on the cross is a picture of surrender, then what we see both there and to a larger degree in His entire ministry is an attitude of submission. So it's not just about uh, surrender. We, We become obedient and we attain to obedience by having an attitude of submission. Who, honestly, if you look at it, the meaning of the word submission is right there in the name, isn't it? Submission. A mission that is lower than a greater mission. That's what submission really means. Jesus thought it was more important to submit any personal mission or any agenda that he had for the greater mission of the Father. I want you to turn to to Luke. If you still have your finger there, I want to read what Jesus said says and what he does based on the word of God. Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 14. Then Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Hold on to that. Wade's already talked about the Holy Spirit. We're going to come talk about the Holy Spirit again. Reports about Jesus spread quickly throughout the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, I love this phrase here, by the way, he went as usual. Like, see, Jesus didn't show up to the synagogue to to make a production and a show. Like, Jesus is here. No, Jesus went to the synagogue because that's what he always did. It's what he always did from the time he grew up as a boy to the time he's in his ministry here as a man. I'm going to go to the synagogue where God's word is read. And as he goes there, as usual, the synagogue, he stood up to read the scriptures. And wouldn't you know it, the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him, and he unrolled it and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see and the depressed be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll and he handed it back to the attendant and he sat down. I, do you, I just always love how just calm and cool Jesus is. Like this is a, this is a moment right here where he's, about, he's setting something up. He just rolls it up and he says, there you go. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. And then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Guys, because of Jesus' obedience to the truth of God's word, 
God's word in this moment here in Luke chapter 4 is being made real. You know, I think that many times people get the picture of Jesus as, as like he's a comic book or a movie hero, right? Like he, he's kind of like Superman. He can just, he can do whatever he want, wants. The uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it this way, Jesus was not Superman. Many today see Jesus as a kind of Christian version of the movie character that he's able to do whatever he wanted, to zap reality any shape, any shape he liked. In the movie, Superman looks like an ordinary human being, but he really isn't. Underneath the disguise, he is all-powerful, a kind of super magician. That is certainly not the picture of Jesus that we get in the New Testament. I mean, would you call someone who says, it's not my will, it's your will, God. It's not my words, it's your word, God. Whatever you want, God. Well, that, that's not super magician, do whatever I want. Instead, what do we get when we come to Jesus' life? Although He was God, He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, He gave up his divine privileges. Guys, that is the chief expression of surrender and submission. If you look back to, to Luke 4 here again, at the very end of that chapter, there's a very important exchange that sets the whole tone for Jesus' ministry. Jesus has this moment in the synagogue and then he goes through this whole thing and basically says to the people of Nazareth, um, you, you guys have no faith. You don't get it. You don't see what's standing in front of you, to which they really just want to push him over the side of the cliff. Then he has a moment here where he casts out a demon and he, and he heals many people, including Simon's mother-in-law. Then we come to verses 42 through 44, and I want to read those. Listen to what he says here. Listen to the surrender and the submission in Jesus' life. Early the next morning, Jesus went out to an isolated place. The crowd searched everywhere for him, and when they finally found him, they begged him not to leave them. But he replied, and listen to these words, I must. I have to. I am compelled to preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too, because guess what? That is why I was sent. And so he continued to travel around preaching in synagogues throughout Judea. Guys, Jesus is being sought out by the crowds. He is a rock star at this point in this little town of Nazareth. He has experienced some early success and some momentum from his healings and setting demon-possessed people free. And when they find him, when the crowds find him, they beg him to stay and not leave them. Can you imagine what that would do to you? Your head would start to swell. You're like, that's right. You guys need me. You guys, you guys have to depend on me, rely on me. Do, they don't want me to leave. And Jesus' response, I believe, is indicative of understanding exactly what his time on earth was all about. He says it here very clearly and very plainly. I must preach the good news because that is why I was sent. 
Not to accrue a massive following or to make a name for myself, but to make the name of the Father greater and greater. To expand and to extend His kingdom farther and farther. Guys, I cannot overstate this. To me, this is the heart of having a surrendered and submissive heart. Guys, we, we only get to obedience as we clearly understand the mission that we have been given. I think sometimes that's the problem with, with many people, and especially some of us in the church, is we, we don't show much obedience because we really don't get the mission. And we don't get the mission, and we don't live the mission. See, as we recognize God's call in our life and we live into that, it causes all of our personal missions and all of our agendas to just simply fall by the wayside. And wouldn't you know it, we discover our mission and we become committed to God's mission as we come to know and trust and obey the authority of God's word. We are under the authority of the word of God because we are under the authority of the God who gave the word. As followers of Christ, one way we show our submission to God is by our submission to His Word. Not only by acknowledging the truthfulness of the Word, but by walking in obedience to the truth that it teaches and the mission that it gives us. And ultimately, at the end of the day, guys, when it comes down to it, our true submission to God's Word is not demonstrated by the amount of time that we spend listening to God's truth, but by the degree to which we live in obedience to that word. I've got a very simple formula I'm going to put up here on the screen, and it simply says this, that our stated belief plus our actual practice of our beliefs equals our actual beliefs. See, guys, we could say all day long, well, I, be I believe this. I believe this to be true. I believe God's word to be true and have authority in my life, but we don't do anything with it. We don't stay obedient to it and in it then it's just a state of belief. It's not an actual belief. But when we put all of these things together with obedience, we state a belief and we actually practice it because we're obedient to it, it becomes an actual belief. And if that is true, here's my question to you. What does your current obedience to God's Word say about the degree to which you believe God's Word? Does the way that you live your life demonstrate consistent active submission to God and His Word through a lifestyle of ongoing obedience in all things. But I believe that there's one more disposition that Jesus displays in His life and in His ministry, and I believe it's actually more of a posture. And I think it's possibly the most difficult one for many of us to mimic in our lives. Yes, believe it or not, harder than surrender and submission. The end of Jesus' life shows a high level of surrender, and the whole of this ministry is marked by submission. It's worth noticing that the beginning of his life is defined by a commitment to humility. He took the humble position of a servant and was born as a human being, Philippians 2 says. Condescending, coming down from a place of glory to the position of humanity for humanity. In the incarnation, in Jesus taking on flesh, the divine Son lived a life of perfect obedience and submission to God as a representative of His people, which fulfilled the expectations of the prophets and provided the way of salvation for the people of God. You'll remember towards the end of Jesus' life, 
when Pilate has a chance to get a hold of Jesus, he grills him and asks him questions and just really badgers him. And then it says he comes out to the people, and what does it say that Pilate says about Jesus? I find no, I find no fault in this guy. Notice that the Pharisees constantly are after Jesus, chasing their tails, trying to trap Jesus in his words, and they could never seem to trap Jesus in his own words. Because guess why? He was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. Boy, what would happen in life if we displayed the very same thing? That no matter how frustrated people got with us or angry they got with us or how narrow-minded they thought we were, they would see in us, I, I can't find any fault in this person because they are so consistently obedient to God's Word. The obedience and sinlessness of Christ culminates in the truth that He was obedient and sinless as a representative of us, of humanity, of people. He didn't come to earth merely to show off His ability to do what no one else could do and to do some magic tricks and heal a few people and cast out a few demons. He came, as has been attested to in Scripture and the early church, for us and for our salvation. That is why He came. And just before you come into chapter 4 in Luke, back here in chapter 3, you see what happens in verse 21. It's the baptism of Jesus. And there's always a question that comes up in people's minds when they think about that. Why? I don't, like, have you ever really thought about that? Why in the world does Jesus need to be baptized? If you didn't think it, John the Baptist thought it bring that up here in just a minute. Why does Jesus have to be baptized? This is Jesus' coming out party here, if you will. His ministry is beginning. He is about to take up the mission for which he has been called and sent to earth. He is without sin. So why in the world get baptized? Because I believe, in small and large part, this act is the epitome of who Jesus is and how he will live his life in humility. We get a better sense of this in Matthew's retelling of this account. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 and 15, it says this, Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, but John tried to talk him out of it. I just, I love that line, by the way. Like, you don't need to do this, Jesus. He goes, I'm the one who needs to be baptized here, Jesus. Why are you coming to me? And listen to what Jesus says. It should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. Humility. Lowering of himself. I mean, really and truly, in the grand scheme of all things, did the Son of God need to be baptized? One who is without sin need to be baptized? I guess we could debate that question. But he says, we must carry this out. We must do this. We have to do this thing because it is what God requires. In this moment where everything is culminated and he can at long last come out of hiding, what does Jesus do? 
He humbles himself. And if that isn't enough, his very next move is to willingly humble himself more by being led into the wilderness to be tempted and tried to experience humiliation in a greater sense, which we're really going to dig into in a couple of weeks as we talk about this temptation scenario. Guys, biblically speaking, obedience is first about understanding that you are under the authority of God. And when you grasp this truth and you turn your ears to him, you can receive his direction and you can know his will. A Greek term for obedience in the Bible communicates the idea of taking a position of submission and trusting in God's sovereignty. Okay, it's, it's, it really comes down to this and is as simple as this. You obey whatever you obey. And in this case, you obey God because you trust and you have faith in God and His Word. The Bible. And here's the thing. Trusting, trusting God is not the same as understanding God. Trusting God means transferring your, your confidence and your hope from yourself to Him. It's more about knowing who God is than what he will do and why he will do it. And once we truly trust God, we're primed and we're ready to obey God no matter what. I want you to imagine it this way. I want you to imagine that you have descended into a very deep well. And you're hanging from a rope and a, and a voice from above says to you, I'm an angel of God. And I'm here to rescue you. If you just, if you just let go of that rope. <laughs> what? There seems to be no end to this, this well that you're in. And you try holding on just a little while longer. You're, all your strength is just eventually depleted as you're hanging on to this rope. And despite the risk, you decide that you're going to listen to the voice and you're going to release your grasp. And much to your surprise, you fall just a few inches to the rock bottom of the well. What you thought was an endless bottom to this well, you just let go and you're there. Guys, trust is really like that. Trusting God's word is like that. It's, it's a risk, but it is a worthwhile risk. Because God is perfectly good and he is perfectly loving. He will never ask us to do something that is not the very best thing for us in the end. And more importantly, and this is what I think a lot rests and rides on, it's, not, it's, it's something that he has already done. It's ground that he is already covered. God is not going to ask us to go and to do anything that he has not already gone and done himself. Guys, only when we trust God will we desire to be able to obey him. Only then will we let go of the rope. Obedience is always worthwhile. I want you to hear that. Obedience is tough. It is hard. It demands a lot from us. But it is always, always worthwhile in the long run. It's hard to believe, guys, that we will ever regret an act of obedience towards God eternally. And likewise, it's hard to find a place in our life where I, I really would love for someone to come up to me afterwards and be like, you know what, Ryan, there was that one time in my life I really flourished when I was disobedient. It doesn't happen. 
There is not a point in your life where you were disobedient and you're like, man, like everything went really, really great in my life when I was disobedient. No. That doesn't work spiritually and it doesn't work in your life like just in reality. All of the surrender, all of the submission, all of the humility in Jesus' life came from an obedience to God's word because of the truth that he found in God's word. And we talked about this a few weeks ago in our Christmas series. I believe this obedience in Jesus' life to the Father came from a healthy obedience modeled by Joseph. You remember what he says, right? Or what he does. He, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded over and over and over again. It says that about Joseph. He does. He just does what the angel tells him to do. And I believe it was modeled in Mary as well, too. You remember what she says when the angel visits her? I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said be true in me. I believe it was modeled in Joseph and Mary and their love for the Father and His Word. But I want you to notice something. I told you we would come back to this. Notice what it is that allows Jesus to show perfect obedience and to not be twisted into the shape of this world, as Paul would say, to be conformed to the image of this world, but be formed into a, a God shape. Luke chapter 4, actually look at verse 1. We're going to go back just a little bit. I want to hit on something very important here. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. Oh, look again, we read this in verse 14. Then Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. And then what does He say in Luke 4.18? The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Guys, if God is working by His Spirit through a person's life, and I believe that this is the only way, and listen to this, I believe that this is the only way that you're going to be able to pursue and display true obedience in your life, that person's life is going to increasingly be formed by the Spirit of God. When we are tested at every level and moment of our life, is, is the Word of God true? Is God's Word worthy of being trusted, especially at the most basic and personal levels of our humanity, we have to rely on the Spirit's power. But I, I believe it is the Holy Spirit's power leading Jesus into all truth, that it's present from Jesus from a very early age. You remember what the angel says to Mary, don't you? Luke 1.35, the angel replied, to Mary. She says, how can this happen? How in the world am I going to give birth to the Son of God? The angel replies, oh, there he is again. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Guys, Jesus does what he does and he is obedient where he is obedient because of the Spirit and the Word. How in the world do we think that we are going to be obedient to God if we don't use His Word? If we don't rely on His Spirit? Especially if the Son of God Himself found it necessary to employ the Bible in fulfilling His mission. 
Because in the end, true obedience starts by having the same attitude of Jesus. But what in the world does that mean? I'll make it as simple as the Bible says. He humbled himself. He started in the, in the highest place. He started as being equal with God. And he descended lower than anyone had ever gone before. And he made himself nothing. He emptied himself of his godness. He, he veiled his godness and he took on the lowly position of a servant and he took on humanity. New Testament scholar Daryl Box says it this way, Jesus' knowledge of the word and his belief in the word is the key to his whole ministry. Here is a means by which we come to understand God's will and his direction. Loyalty to him, loyalty to God invo involves loyalty to the word. And such loyalty is vital. And guys, it's not just vital, it is a blessing. Guys, the greatest blessing of obedience is the delight of a child experiencing and knowing that his obedience has resulted in the honor and joy of a delighted parent. Guys, our blessing in being obedient is the honor that God receives through our obedience. Do you, do you find delight? Do you find blessing in knowing that God is honored and that He is glorified through your obedience to Him? I believe that to do so is a mark of true surrender and submission and humility towards God. After all, we, we cannot expect the Lord to bless anything that we do not surrender to him and i think this is what is so amazing about the bible and about the truth of god's word in and over our lives bible truth should always lead us to worship and those several weeks and months ago levi and levi had a sermon on worship what is worship why do we come and do this thing worship why do we live worship out in every aspect of our lives and i think it rests really right here guys bible truth the truth of god's word is what should lead us to worship in every aspect of our lives doctrine believe it or not a word like doctrine, you're like, ooh, doctrine, that sounds so churchy. Doctrine cries out for our heartfelt devotion. The gospel truths of Christ's obedience and his sinlessness provide much opportunity for reflection in our lives. I mean, for, just really quick here at the end, two things. First, I want you, as we've talked about all this morning, to marvel at the unique obedience of the Savior. I, I mean, we, we've got what well, we've got Olympics coming up again here soon, right? Everybody always get, I mean, I, I have to admit it, I get in the Olympics. We all get in that spirit of like, we want to watch people achieve what they've worked their whole life to do. We marvel and admire at people who, who achieve perfect scores in an Olympic competition. How much more should we marvel at the God-man who waged a lifetime of warfare with Satan and did so in perfect obedience? That's what we should be really impressed with. And secondly, we should praise God that his acceptance of us is not ultimately based on our obedience, but we have a representative. 
a second Adam from above, and because we are in Christ, all that is His is ours, including His perfect obedience. And so I, I close this morning by asking a very simple question, but it's also a very tough one to think about and apply in our lives. Where in your life are you not quite being obedient to God's Word? What in your life is God asking you to do and to take up in your life that you have just resisted for so long? You've held on to that rope with all of your strength and said, no, I am not letting go. That today would be the day that you would finally begin to just... I'm not saying that you always have to just be like, let go of that rope. That's just, could you just do this for me? Could you just ease up your grip on that rope just a little bit and see after time if you can't just let completely go of that thing? That because we believe God's word to be true, we think that it's worth obeying. Will you pray with me? Lord, that's my prayer, my personal prayer. It's my prayer for everyone here, everyone who is watching. Every believer in this world, Lord, that we would, in both small and large ways, find what it means to be obedient to your word, to live our lives in and through your word, to be guided and directed by your word because we think your word and we know your word to be true, that we desire to obey it. We are compelled to obey it. We can do nothing but obey it. And then as we do that, Lord, we become attractive to a world around us. It's not about being right or about being wrong or who is right, who is wrong, but it's, Lord, just about being simple enough to believe that obedience to your word changes things. And that it doesn't happen by luck or chance, but it happens by us displaying the attitudes that your son Jesus Christ did. And surrendering and submitting and humbling himself. And above all that, Lord, I just, I just pray that we would understand that what really truly helps us to become the most obedient in this life towards your word and what you're calling us to is to know exactly what you have called us to. It can only be said as simple as this, Lord. The, the simplicity of obedience to your word, Lord, is to, to love you and to love others. And to want to see others love you more and to become more like you. That is our mission that we're given. To go into this world and to take this gospel that we have and to give it out everywhere that we can. Lord, may we just live in the simplicity of obedience, of doing whatever you have told us to do whenever you tell us to do it. And as we do that, Lord, may that be our heart's worship, our offering that we give back to you is our life, fully obedient, looking like your son, Jesus Christ. 
It is in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.